Jag vet inte hur många sällskaper jag har mött som sliter med att få in professionella investorer till trots för att produkten egentligen är ganska bra och sällskapet visar växt och goda tal. Vi ser en ting de proffsiga investorerna på utsikter i tillägg att du bygger ett bra sällskap självklart är hur du hanterar dina aktionärer eller ditt så kallade cap table som det heter på startupsk. Ett ödelagt cap table sätter rätt och slett en stopper för sällskapsutveckling. Unlisted.ai gör det möjligt för sällskaper att hantera aktie- och optionsprogrammer, aktieägarboken, cap table och det mesta av rättigheter in mot aktierna i sällskapet på ett sted. Pröv Unlisted.ai sin gratisversion idag. So I'm here with Alex Osterwalder, uh, the father of the business model Canvas. And uh, Alex, uh, nice to meet you. My pleasure. And uh, um, so why should we focus on the business model? Uh, if, if you create a nice product, won't the business model come from itself? Well, that's that's the kind of myth in the sense that we used to compete mainly on, on uh, product, technology and price. I think that's increasingly hard. A good example of that is uh, GoPro. GoPro has you know had great products, still have great products, and they have an amazing brand. My kids love it. My son is a GoPro you know super fan. However, if you look at you know how their kind of stock price evolved as an indicator, it went down the drain because people were so fascinated by their initial success. But it's very hard to protect a business model purely based on product, and that was their case. So they tried to change their business model and become more of a media company, but they didn't succeed. So you're in this terrible cycle of always having to reinvent your products and technologies, keep up with everybody else, and in their case, they didn't even have patents to protect most of it. That's so hard at a day and age where you have competitors from all over the place, North America, Europe, you know, Asia, that can come up with great technology products. Now compare that to Apple with uh, the iPhone or iOS. So what protects them there is... If it was just for the phones, you know, others probably would have caught up. And there's so many phones out there. What's difficult to copy is the iOS ecosystem of millions of developers. You know, that's a that's a market today of 20 over 26 billion for developers. So that is impossible to copy. So the difficult thing to copy an Apple's business model around the iPhone or iOS is not the technology or the product itself could even argue in some cases it's not maybe the best phone or so but what's difficult to copy is that business model built around also app developers that's why there are two ecosystems out there so i don't think competing on products is a good plan for the future getting started with that might be fine but you already want to think in the inception phase of how could i build a better business model and that will be the difference between a 10 million and maybe 10 billion dollar company so how much do you stress like the product versus the business model? Because you're you're talking about maybe that the, the products are not that important as the business model. Or... So no, I don't think it's not as important. I think you just need to get several things right to compete in the 21st century. So we came up with the value proposition canvas so you can get the product equation right. And the way I like to frame it is not about the product, it's about the value proposition. So I like to ask, you know, entrepreneurs or innovators, not what's your product, but how are you creating value for your customers? And they will rattle down the features of the product, but nobody cares, right? What matters is how are you actually, or how are your features creating value for the customer? So you need to get two things right to start with. How are you creating value for the customer? That's the value proposition canvas, the value proposition designed around your products and services. 
get that one right? Check. The other one you need to get right is how are you creating value for your organization, for your company? That's the business model canvas. And it turns out there are many different ways to create value for your organization. My favorite example is still Nespresso because they turned a transactional industry selling coffee into one with recurring revenues. That's a multi-billion dollar design choice. So imagine if you come up with a technology, and then a value proposition, but you create recurring revenues and a locked-in customer rather than transactional revenues and a customer that can churn or switch the next day, which is basically GoPro. So you need to get both equations right. And that's just part of the business equation because you need to execute as well. So there's a couple of things you need to get right in business. That's why I believe business, you know, the, the modern business person, entrepreneur, or innovator is going to be extremely good at using tools, a little bit like a heart surgeon. I believe heart surgeons have, you know, are pretty good because they have 13 years of training because they before they can go snip it on a on a person. Entrepreneurs, they can do, you know, a course or not even, uh, and then go and get and go do the thing. But they're going to learn for a long time. So most first-time entrepreneurs, they fail. And it's the fourth or fifth time that they really get it. I think we can we can um, eliminate a lot of that waste. So do, you know, you 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 pull out like Amazon as a as a example of a, you know good example. Yeah. But h- how much do you think that was a design business model? And and you know, for Apple's sake, you know, was it was it design or was it just lucky? So let me go back to the Nespresso example <coughs> because we can learn a lot from that. So that was actually a lucky punch, the right person at the right time. So they, their first business model didn't work. The inventor, Eric Favre, came up with a business model that didn't work, and they almost went bankrupt. And then the board brought in a new CEO. Um, so, so the new CEO came up with a new business model, and that eventually worked. But it took a long time. All of that we can now do more systematically. So I think many of the examples today that we still look at we're not systematically developed with tools. But I think we can do that now. It's like before, you know, before we had good medicine for this or this uh, this thing, you know, well, some cures, but we're getting better and better at doing these things. So now we have the tools. Now we know how to do these things systematically. We know how to systematically decrease decrease the risk of innovation. That was not possible before. So the argument to say, well, you know, some of those examples they succeeded without doesn't really play. I'll give you an example because because I was intrigued by that. So many of my successful entrepreneur friends, I asked them, okay, you succeeded. You didn't need any tools. You had success. Why are you interested in the business small canvas or value proposition canvas or lean startup? And their answer is always the same. Well, it wouldn't have taken me so long and I would have gotten there a lot faster. Okay, so it doesn't mean because it was possible before that we shouldn't use the tools that allow us to do it more systematically today. Think of the quality movement. People, you know, some people were always more concerned with quality than others, but now we know how to do that systematically, or the traditional lean, Six Sigma, etc. We get more systematic over time. So discrediting some of this stuff and saying, yeah, there were successes before. Well, there was quality before the quality movement, and there were lean companies before the whole, you know, Six Sigma movement. So that doesn't really make sense to me. What I do think is it's a it's a good excuse to a certain extent. I think now we need to become more professional. It can't be that we say, hey, you know, 20% of your time, do a little bit of innovation. It's as if I'd say, hey, you know, to the accountants, to the marketing people, 
Okay, you know, for the the whole week you work in operations, but you're gonna do some some marketing and finance like on Friday afternoon. We need to get professional. Okay, so I think the days of experimentation are beyond us. We now know what works. So come on, let's let's go and do it. So so how how do you actually use the business model canvas? Like you you were saying on stage that a lot of people are just filling it out like you know like a template, but that's yeah. that's not probably the best way to do it. So yeah. so how how do you do that? So couple of things. First of all, it's it's a very simple tool that allows you to describe the business model of an organization, right? So you could use it to assess a business model and improve it when you have an existing business, or you could use it during the design phase when you come up with a new business model. So that's there's many different ways. Some companies use it in mergers and acquisitions. But what's really important also to understand is that the tool itself there's some best practices. It's not about filling out the boxes. It's about understanding the quality of the business model, the business model story. So not just, oh, I have another channel, a new channel. Oh, I have a new product. Like, who cares? That's the old way. What I want to understand is how are you going to lock in the customer? How are you going to create a long-term relationship? How is that going to create recurring revenues? How is that going to scale? I want to understand the big picture story of why is your business model better than anybody else out there? Why are you going to outcompete, you know, companies with the same product or technology? Why are you better? Ah, differentiation. Well, differentiation is harder and harder to kind of, you know, keep you ahead. So you need a better business model. So we talk about business model stories and ultimately how you design those better stories. So, so what's an example of a business model story? Well, Nespresso is one, right? They, you know, in an industry where you could buy coffee one day, switch the brand the next day and buy different coffee, the switching costs were very low in that industry. Then comes Nespresso and creates the pods protected with patents for a very long time. And you, once you bought that machine, you had to buy coffee from them through direct channels, insane margins and recurring revenues. That was a, you know, That was a profit-spitting machine and was the biggest contributor of profits for Nestle for a long time. While it wasn't the biggest business unit of Nestle, the biggest food company in the world, it was the biggest profit contributor. Okay, so that's one example. You want to really think of those all the time. And I was talking about switching costs. I remember, this is one example, right? At um, Years ago at SCM, you might know them, the uh, Swedish company, one of the biggest companies in, in the whole hygiene, you know, they make toilet paper, but they also make installations for bathrooms for large companies. When I said yeah, switching costs, they immediately started thinking like, how could we create switching costs in the toilet paper industry, right? But that's exactly the kind of thinking you want. Don't think about products, in particular, in a commodity business, right? How can you think better business model? So yes, you still want to differentiate based on product, sure. But what you really want to think of is how can I design a better business model that will outcompete others? That's the fundamental question. Yeah. So um, you said that uh, uh, large companies can't innovate today. Uh, so what do you mean by that? So obviously I wanted to be a bit provocative because I do think you take Amazon and then people say, yeah, but it's a tech company. And well, you know what? Amazon was large and had razor-thin margins when they started coming up with Amazon Web Services, right? So that's a large company that did it. But there are very few that make that 
kind of investment. And when I say investment, I don't just mean the money, but companies that create a cultural space where innovation has power. Jeb Bezos is simply amazing because he says, you know, on stage and in his investor letter to shareholders, he says, I want Amazon to be the best place in the world to fail. Because he knows, and innovation and statistics show, you can't come up with breakthrough innovations without failure. You can look at innovation anywhere. There will be a lot of failure. And when we talk about all this lean, it's almost like we're saying, yeah, no, no, we're going we're gonna to make failure cheaper. But that's the only reason we're going to accept it, because we're iterating and, and we want everybody to, to, to win. You can't get it that way. So we need to create a culture. And that is so hard for most institutions to do because if you have a successful business model, what's your task? You're going to grow it. You're going to make it more efficient. And that's what management was about for hundreds of years. (laughs) Since we started management literature, that's what it was about. Building and scaling and making one business model efficient. Well, it's just that today business models expire. So I need to come up with the next ones. So while I need to continue to be world-class at execution, I also need to be world-class at innovation. So what's hard for companies is to create a dual culture. And when CEOs say or the C-suite says, everybody needs to be an innovator, that's nonsense. Because yes, everybody to a certain extent, but some will be process innovators and others will be real entrepreneurs. Those are different types of innovations that require a different culture, different processes, different tools. So that's what makes it hard. This is so different from what we've been doing in companies until now that people can't grasp. They can't get their head around it. And then there's a series of myths around innovation that make it very scary. So if we don't overcome those myths, we're not going to see innovation, big scale innovation in most companies. So how does these two uh, organizations that you described, how do, how, how do they coexist? <laughs> That's an excellent question. So you might remember when Steve Jobs had the Mac division, he raised, he famously raised the pirate flag. So we're the pirates, right? So today every great innovator says, I'm a pirate right? in, in large institutions. That's nonsense. What do, you, what do we do with pirates historically? We kill them. <laughs> so, so you don't want to be a pirate. You want to be a partner. So what we really need to create is a organizational structure where innovation and execution live in harmony. The people who execute a known business model, they say, those are the guys inventing the future, the ladies. <laughs> and the innovators need to say, those are the people who are running you know, the current business and they're make, giving us the money. And it turns out once you start scaling a business, you want to take it away from the innovators and you want to put it you know, to those, you want to give it to those who know how to execute. So this is a partnership which is not the case in most companies today for a, ver- for a variety of reasons, right? So we need to create a partnership where both cultures live in harmony. And I think it's possible. Are there any examples of that uh, happening today? Amazon. is it? So okay. the one that is publicly known, I'm seeing this on a small scale with some of the companies we work with, and I can't talk about it, unfortunately. But on a large scale, the only one I've seen so far on a large scale, really Amazon. Okay. On a micro scale, I can see it in many different companies where they're, and we're working with one pharmaceutical company. They have a $50 million investment fund where it's just business innovation. 
We have 30 teams in the spring, a cohort going through this three months. And, you know, just a quarter of those will get follow-up investment. Three quarters won't, but they don't see themselves as failures because they participate in this process. And then the, in the fall, they have another 30 um, 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 co- uh, teams going through this second cohort, right? So they're doing that. And the teams are coming from the execution space. But that's just a first step. Like, that's not professional enough yet. Yet it's a great first step that I don't see even in, in many other companies. So we're getting there. And you can't change this overnight. These are fundamental changes in the organizational structure and in the way we manage companies. So it's not going to happen overnight. But we can learn from Amazon because Jeff Bezos talks about it publicly. It's in the letters to investors. All you need to do is copy. That's it. Some of the basic stuff. It's out there. We know it. Well, uh, it sounds easy to copy, but uh, I don't uh, personally, yeah, because you have a lot of pressure from your shareholders, and you're you know you're 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 hired because you're good at what you do, right? And sure. that's making profit out of what sure. business model you already have. Sure, and so, you uh, know, so I work with one company. They it's about a five billion dollar company, and the CEO says exactly what you're saying. Is is we have the money to put up a hundred million dollar kind of digital transformation fund, but I can't sell it to investors. Okay. So I have a very concrete picture of that in mind when you say, you know, pressure from shareholders. Yet, you know, if we don't start at one point, you know what shareholders are going to get? They're going to get disruption. Like, what do you want? Do you want a Nokia or a Blackberry or do you want? So the reality is that today, some of the activist investors are putting an insane pressure on CEOs. Okay. So I get that. Now, on the other hand, maybe, you know, thinkers can start working with activist investors or the longer-term activist investors. Take the Norwegian oil fund. Wow, that's a long-term investor. Maybe we can work with them to show how this works, okay? So I do believe the short-termism is a challenge, but all of the data shows long-term thinking, McKinsey has some reports out there, brings results. So they're not only activist investors, okay? There's also some long-term investors. So... Let's kind of try to work around those things that are not just excuses, but let's get it to happen, okay? Because I think we know enough to move the needle at least a little bit. Let's make a first step. A big journey starts with a small step. That's an easy step to take. So do you think that uh, CEOs that are good at communicating to their shareholders, like Jeff Bezos is, and communicating growth over revenue, communicating long-term over short-term, well, the, the ability a, yeah. is is that the most essential skill that the well, this, it's <laughs> the the reason why so think you might want to think of it this way so a ceo who does think about creating new growth engines often has an entrepreneurial track record think jeff bezos okay entrepreneur he created the company steve jobs coming back entrepreneur right and michael dell coming back taking the company private so not every world class ceo for execution has the DNA to create a growth engine, okay? So I do think we need to talk about different types of CEOs. And, you know, Lego was experimenting with this, okay? The the CEO who turned around the company became the chairman. They put in place more like an operator as the CEO of, of Lego. So companies are trying to play with this. So I don't think communication is the main skill. As in the main skill is still, how am I going to produce results, in innovation and growth. However, 
you can't compromise execution. So what happened to GE and Steve Blank, you know, the grandfather of, of uh, the lean startup movement, says this really well in a blog post. GE invested in innovation and was getting somewhere, but they neglected execution. Okay, They didn't bring the results. It's not that they neglected it, but they didn't have the results in their core business. So you can't do innovation and not have results in, in your core business. You need both. That's the challenge. World-class execution, world-class results here, but not 5% growth. It's not possible. You create the growth from over here. So it's a dual culture. That's what you need to put in place. I think most CEOs are world-class executioners. They're not entrepreneurs. And that's easy to say it, right? Because all of the pressures, I mean, they were hired to execute, not to invent. Today, the big challenge is invent. Okay, so the challenge has changed. We need a new breed of CEOs or somebody who complements the CEO, the chief entrepreneur, and they work as a partnership. Yeah. I'm just going to just stop this for a moment. Sorry. Okay, and we're back. And I, I wanted to um, to ask you about uh, mm-hmm. the the seven questions to sure. ask. Sure. Yeah. 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 So, so what are the seven questions to assess your business model? Let's start with the first one: switching yeah. cost. What do you? So, so maybe let's before we go into that, think of it this way. So, in architecture and in software, we have patterns, right? Patterns, and we create a pattern library. Some kind of things we can pick and choose from to create either a great building or great software. I think in business models, it's the same thing. Let's think of the most powerful business models out there and what made them powerful. And I like to call this either patterns or business model mechanics. And then pick and choose and design our own business model. And some of those questions are very basic, but they will allow us to design better business models. Okay, So that's the way you want to think of it. I gave seven today at the conference, we're working on a new book where we're going to look at all of the world's best business models to create a pattern library for you. So if we take those seven, one is switching costs. How easy or difficult is it for your customer to switch? Design a business model where it's hard for customers to switch. Okay. The other one is recurring revenues. Is it good to have transactional revenues, GoPro? Sure. But you know what? They can go away. So would it be better to have recurring revenues? Customers, you acquire them once, they pay you again and again. Perfect, right? There are ways you can design that into your business model. So if you were the CEO of GoPro, what would you do? So they tried, okay? It's not as if they didn't try. They tried to become more of a media company, okay? But they abandoned that. And what did they do? They went into drones. So they moved away from, from designing a more powerful business model, and they moved into product innovation. And that's what killed them because they had a whole new product category in which they also needed to compete, which is insanely competitive. It's even worse than cameras. Go anywhere, right? So what they should have not done is go into drones. It's easy to say, of course, now. What they really should have done is work on their business model around the camera. They had a great product. They had something wonderful, an amazing brand. My son, again, loves those guys. So... They should have focused more on how can we create moats around that. Okay. okay. Now, do I know the answer? Of course not. It's not my business. <laughs> Would they know the answer overnight? No, of course not. You need to experiment with 10, 20, 50 different ideas until you figure out the answer. There are no simple answers to difficult problems. 
So any consultant who comes in and develops an, an-, an answer for you is bullshit. Okay? Mm. You need to go through a process where you ideate, come up with some possible business models, and then you experiment until you figure out which business model could really protect my great brand and my great product. So, so it should have been something towards the service space or ha- enhancing Look, the experience. So I'm not going to give you an answer because there is no simple answer. It could be. It could have been a media company. It could have been anything else. Yeah. What I think many CEOs need to understand is the answer is not obvious and maybe it's an entirely different industry. So let me just throw this in for a second. Okay. If I ask you, what industry is Apple in? What's your answer? What industry is Apple in? There's no answer, right? No, no. Because they're in hardware, they're in software, they're in content. Amazon is even worse, right? Amazon is even worse. They're in B2C and B2B, like different planets, okay? Because the unit of analysis is not the industry anymore. Michael Porter, that was, was 1985, industry analysis. Industry analysis doesn't matter today anymore. It's the business model. They have a superior business model. So what GoPro needs to think of is how can they create a a superior business model, which might not be in cameras. Cameras, one component, just like the phone is a component of Apple's business model. Okay. So could it be services? Yeah, but don't stay stuck. And again, to their credit, they had a kind of a phase where they were trying to go into media and become a media company. Just like Angry Birds wanted to be a media company, right? They wanted to be the next Disney. But that's exactly the kind of stuff we need to continue to try to outcompete others. So the best mis- so the best business model you could have is to be the best at creating business models. So exactly, that's what Amazon put in place. If you have the process to continuously churn out ideas, accept that many will fail, outright fail. If you have a lot of failures, you will have one home run. That's when you will come up with the best one. So I do think the process is the most important. So people think about this creative myth. I hire the creative person. He, he or she is going to kind of come up, churn it out, right? Give me the answer. No way. It's the process. Even a Frank Gehry, an architecture, whoever you want to take, they have a process. There's a creative process and there's a lot of failures there. Okay. Yeah. So uh, we talked about switching costs, okay. recurring revenues. Uh, GoPro didn't didn't nail that, and then earning versus spending. That's the so, third point. Yeah. So here's and look, you can't perform a ten on all of these. So no. one is, can you earn money before you spend money? So typically, I use the example of the PC industry. They had to manufacture the PCs before they could sell them, right? And then comes Dell which earns first and then only starts spending money on assembling these things, which was turning it around, which is great, right? If you're in the software business, well, maybe you actually have to spend first because you're going to create a platform. But at least you do it deliberately, consciously. So always think, could I earn before I spend? Sometimes you can't, sometimes you can't. But if you earn before you spend, wow, that's just great because you can even start making money on the interest rates. Yeah, like this conference, they earn the money. Before there you go. Every actually every travel agent, every every conference, they earn money before they have to deliver. Okay, before they pay the speakers. Right? Yeah. So yeah, it's a good example. So um, uh, and then the game changing cost structure. That's yeah, your so, point. So what I think a lot of companies need to realize is their competitors will come from unexpected places. Okay, so if you take Skype, 
they disrupted the telecom industry as a software company. So the telecom industry at the time was based was a hardware industry in the sense they had to build the network, huge capital expenditures to even survive. Then comes Skype, zero capital expenditures because it's a software company using the existing infrastructure, the internet. So it wasn't a cost in their business model and killed the huge, you know, pricing. The, when you wanted to make a call from Norway to Switzerland, you probably paid about five bucks per minute. This is gone, right? Because now you can call for free. So that will happen to many industries, happen to the mapping industry, Google coming in, free maps, right? They had to reinvent themselves. So you'll increasingly see companies coming to an, into an industry with a different business model and different economics. I think that's really, really important to understand. So, so how should uh, established companies relate to that? How should they, if they, you know, how how should they? What should be their strategy for, you know, par- partnering with these types of? Uh, so take so take uh, the telecom industry. So how did they react? Because their prices were destroyed. There's no way you can do anything because prices went down the drain. Like even partnering with Skype, fine, but you can't ask for five dollars anymore between Norway and Switzerland. That's gone. So there's no way that partnering would even solve that. The only thing you can do is what they did, but maybe a bit faster, is they went into different areas. So today, the telecom operators in many countries, they offer you know TV services, content services. So they had to go into completely different industries. It's just that they did it as a reactive force. Okay, what you want to do is proactively. So before Skype comes in, you already want to have you know experimented with those business models. So you diversify before you have to. Yeah. So that's that's actually your yeah your main point. So if they were in like if they were were actually running your yeah. ideal company, they if were. If they had a portfolio, they yeah. would have been ready. Yeah. Exactly. So and um, uh, um, uh, you you also pointed out uh, some companies that let others people do the work, like yeah. uh, for example IKEA, and that's <laughs> a characteristic of uh, of how to you know assess the business model. So uh, and and how can you make people work for you? <laughs> so. It's all about creativity, right? So um, Red Hat Linux built a business model based on a freely available operating system, Linux. Okay. What they asked themselves is, well, what value can we create for customers? And what they understood is customers actually want to use Linux because it was more stable. However, you know, these are open source developers. Who's responsible if there's a problem? So Red Hat Linux understood that what companies are really buying is not just a software, but a legal guarantee. So what Red Hat Linux did is they took, you know, an, an instance of Linux and they stress tested it really to guarantee that they could take over legal liabilities, etc. So they started packaging it, right? But based on, and they made that freely available because what companies were buying was not the software per se, but the legal kind of guarantee. Yeah, so they were actually buying insurance. Yeah. So... They figured out what really was the value to customers and a lot of the, you know, capital intensive stuff or costly stuff they would get from others. So the question is always, what do you really need to do yourself and what can you do, you know, get others to do? IKEA figured out, and again, that was kind of, you know, it happened over time. It was lucky. The story is really fun because uh, Kamprad was not able to produce inside Sweden. So he had to go elsewhere. And then he had to ship that stuff. So he came up with flat, you know, this shipping and, and the whole thing came together kind of, right? But actively think, what do you really need to do yourself? 
And what can you get others to do? Facebook, like they have 1.8 billion people creating content for them. No brainer, right? People don't go to Facebook for, you know, for the platform. They go for the content. Content happens to be created by others. But there's actually two, two different value propositions. Uh, because you have the value sure. proposition of the consumer on Facebook, like, you sure. know, and then you have the value proposition for the producer, sure. right? Yeah. And, 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 the, the, for the producer, you mean? Like, you know, the, 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 the point of, you know, producing content on Facebook. Sure. Is not necessarily connecting with others. Not necessarily. Yeah. It, it could be about, um, promoting yourself. Promoting yourself, yeah, right? Sure, sure, like sure. marketing or, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, was, so that's the same thing, right? Yeah. I mean, YouTube started with that even earlier, right? It was that same thing. You have the consumers and you have those who produce, like people who put YouTube videos online way before there were YouTube stars. Yeah. yeah. I was just thinking about, um, the nuances in the, in, in the value proposition. And it so I would say yeah. nuances in the value proposition and the business model. And again, yeah. I think people have a very superficial understanding of business models because they don't understand how you can really design better business models. So people will say razor blade model. That's again, that's very light and very high level. The question is, how can you design better business models? It's becoming more like the profession of an architect, sometimes maybe even more complicated than a building. How are you going to design that? So, This kind of high-level thinking that we often have in business is going to go away and, and make place for professionalism because those who really know how to design better business models are going to outcompete the others, for yeah. sure. Hmm. So, and scalability? Scalability just means asking yourself, like, how fast can a business model scale? And the reason we put that question on, on the sheet is I see so many executives in these ideation workshops They come up with niche business models that might kind of sound interesting and be fascinating around a technology or a product, but they're not scalable. So scalability means think of, you know, do you want to do intellectual property licensing? That's the most scalable thing, you know, franchising or just putting in place something where you automate parts of the business so it becomes more scalable. So always thinking, how can I help my business to grow faster? Thinking of scaling from day one. How can I make this a global business? How could this re really become big? What's the biggest version of this? And you'll automatically think about scaling. Uh, protection from competition. So that's kind of brings it all together in the sense that I think those companies that have better business models, better business model stories, moats around their business model, those companies will outcompete others. And that can be you know various aspects of those that we discussed but they don't just compete on product or price. They have a business model that makes them very, very hard to outcompete, very hard to be disrupted. With the business models we know so far, the same business models, but you will see disruptors coming from other industries. Now, if you're just competing on products, services, and price, it's much easier to be disrupted. So I think the whole competition is moving away from product competition, is hard, Technology competition is hard towards something that you can protect. And the only thing that gives you protection at the moment is a better business model. Or if you put it even larger, like Amazon, a better organizational structure that allows you to continuously produce new business models. Those are what I call the invincible companies. But how do you actually make it, design a business model? 
I don't understand how do how do you actually be a, how do you actually be good at designing business models? Yeah, so number one, you understand the anatomy of business models. Okay, so I just bought this huge thing as an inspiration for our next book. A medical student buys a book on the anatomy of a human being. That's you know five hundred pages, and they know every single piece and they understand the body. Do you think a business model is less complex? It's more complex because the business model is dynamic, but the, the body parts are static, right? There you go. So why don't we spend an insane amount of time on understanding business models? So before you become a world-class business model designer, you know, other word is innovator or entrepreneur, you need to really understand this. So traditionally, it's just like in medicine. Before we had a curriculum for medicine, Guess what? People were snipping and they kind of learned on the go over like a long time. Da Vinci and so on made those drawings and we learned. Just that we got better and better and that and then there was a curriculum for that because, you know, it's the difference between life and death. Well, here we're talking about business models. It's the difference between organizational life and death. So I think we're becoming more and more professional in our understanding of the topic. That's number one. Once we have that understanding... It's still not possible because it's dynamic to just on paper design the perfect business model. You still need to test it, throw it away and iterate. And even then, again, let me repeat the numbers. Four out of a hundred will give you outsized returns. Only four out of a hundred early stage investments return 10 to 50 times the capital. Okay. It means 96% are zero to 10 times return. So, so this is science. It's what the research shows around early stage investments. Okay. And okay. that's what we have so far. I'd love to have better science <laughs> if we had. I do think we will get actually better um, management science over time. I think there's some things. It's social science. So come on. We'll never be able to predict the future, <laughs> but we can get better at it. There's no excuse. Anymore. So you have your own company, right? Yeah. Uh, strategizer. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so how, how are you? How are you disrupting your own business model? Continuously. So so look at this this way. What we're trying to do is create a software that supports human creativity to design, test, and implement strategy. Okay, Get the C-suite all the way down to the innovator entrepreneur to manage strategy. The way I see it is we did this for operations with SAP and Oracle. Why can't we create that kind of software, not for operations, but for strategy and innovation? Now, that sounds cool, like cool vision, right? Unfortunately, there's no market for that now because companies don't work that way. If you have a software for a future problem, you're way too early. So our challenge as a company is, this is our vision, and it's the market we want to create. What are the intermediary business models to get there? So I never wanted a, you know, a pure consulting or training company. I don't think that's, that's so much fun. I had some of that before. So we're trying to figure out the scalable aspect. So we have this cloud academy where we, you know, we train thousands of people in a more scalable way than if we did workshops. Companies like MasterCard, they train 15% of their staff with this. Okay. This is an intermediary step towards that longer term vision. So we constantly need to evolve our business model until we get to that. The other aspect is, you know, business small portfolio. Even as a small company, we have a portfolio of businesses. Some that work today and that make money and that fund our future, which is over there. Then the other aspect that we always need to remind ourselves, that let's not, you know, 
get disconnected from the customer. Value proposition canvas and continuous kind of testing and bringing evidence to the table, that's not easy. You always need to remind yourself past success doesn't predict the future. You do something new, you need to test it, you need to test it, you need to test it. So we need to force ourselves. And many of the tools we create is based on the hard challenges we faced as a company. Yeah. So, so what is your finishing off? What is, what is your message to the innovators inside the large companies? My message is don't give up. Like this is, we did the hard part. I think many companies are now getting there. It's going to take another maybe five to 10 years, which is long, but don't give up yet. And if you're in a company that really is not investing in innovation, go look for those who have made the first steps, who are making the first learnings. And I see many of those, unfortunately, in, in some really big companies where I admire the brands. They're not investing in innovation in the right way yet, and they're losing their best talent. So my kind of message to the innovators is don't give up. If you're in a company that doesn't do it, find those that are because some are. I know it's it's a frustrating game. But we're getting there. <laughs> and the other one is continuously learn and share with others in the community so we can, as a community of practice, grow. Because we need each other to kind of, you know, make this change happen. And to a certain extent, it's a revolution, right? <laughs> we're going to get rid of these old management practices. And I think it's happening. That's the fun part. I wouldn't have said this maybe five years ago, but now I'm really seeing big corporations making the first steps, and it's exciting. It's really, really, really exciting. Alex Osweiler, thank you so much for having this talk with me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you.